It's 6 p.m. and you are listening to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, May 25th, 2021. I'm Claudio Mendoza and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Today is the first anniversary of the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. As such, the California Report speaks with activists around the state about the movement for racial equality in California. Then we'll listen to an excerpt from George Floyd a year later by racial reckoning reporter Georgia Fort. After a brief look at regional weather and local headlines, we'll listen to this week's water news and we'll close with a commentary about cryptocurrency by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. A year ago today, George Floyd was murdered at the hands of Minneapolis police. The shocking video of the incident led to demonstrations and protests across the country, including here in California. Many communities here have had their own reckoning on racial equity and policing, including Sacramento, where the police shooting death of Stefan Clark three years ago has sparked calls for change. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin spoke with Tanya Faison, the founder of Black Lives Matter Sacramento, about how activists like her are thinking about sustaining the momentum behind the movement for racial equality. From my experience, momentum isn't something that an organizer or an organization can create. It's usually a moment or it's a certain person that's been taken or the situation, how they were taken, that sparks something in the community where everybody wants to show up. It, we've lost 20 people since we've been doing the work in Sacramento, 20 black folks, to police violence. And Stefan Clark was the one who got the most people out. And it's because he was part of two communities. He was loved in two communities in Sacramento. He had a lot of friends. And then a lot of people were just drawn to that story. A lot of people will say, you know, oh, Tanya, you organized this march and you got thousands of people out. And it's like, no, it's the situation that got the people out. And when it comes to George Floyd, I think the situation was is that there was back-to-back killings that were all over the country and they were well-known. COVID was in place, so people were at home just watching all of this. It's like they had to sit down and actually look at this instead of living their lives like normally how we do And so I think that was what brought the momentum out. And I hope that we continue to stay activated because I know it's going to happen again. I saw the list on your website of people who've been killed since 2014, which was really jarring to look at in black and white. And when you're talking, it just made me feel like there's this really sad irony that sometimes the things that are bringing new energy to this movement are the new deaths. Right. It's really sad that we, that we, what do they call that in like basketball? Like you're on defense instead of on offense. It's really sad that, you know, it works that way. But, you know, there are organizations on the ground like ours that are working in offense. Um, you know, we're trying to make sure that things get changed. Um, and then we're also trying to make changes within our community so that we have what we need. And can you tell me a little bit more about those resources and how you feel like they're reinforcing the future of the Black community in Sacramento? We're just trying to make sure that folks that are in our communities have what they need so that they're not trying to get it in other ways. Even if it's clout or career options or business ideas or 
you know, self-defense, you know, learning how to box, like whatever it is that you like to do, doing it in a constructive way. And so that's, we were having a lot of Know Your Rights trainings by organizations like the ACLU and the um, the National Lawyers Guild. But, you know, they would say things like, well, you don't have to show your license or ID if you're walking. And that's true legally, but if you're black and you tell an officer no, you might get killed. So we want to make a space where we can funnel those services into the community and provide a place for folks to be reliant on each other instead of on the system that we're fighting. Tanya Faison, founder of Black Lives Matter Sacramento, I really appreciate your making time to talk to us. Thank you so much. I appreciate you calling me. Now we'll hear from 15-year-old Jaden Polk, a racial justice advocate from Oakland. She spoke with the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi about how she envisions the future of racial justice, including why she thinks people are hesitant about the idea of defunding the police. Well, people are scared, for one, um, and that fear is derived from ignorance. People are taught from a really young age that you call the police when something bad happens. So when you think of taking money from those people, the first thing they think of is chaos and fear and the whole city's going to burn it, which is just not the case. Defunding the police is meant to take that money and reinvest in communities to prevent the crime from happening in the first place. When you give people mental health resources and education and housing, then there's gonna be, there's gonna be a clear significant drop in crime. So people don't want their safety net, their false safety net to be taken from under them. I think young organizers and organizers in general are still fighting for something. What are you pushing for? What are the next steps? Because obviously the fight is not over for you guys. No, it's not. And it's never going to be over until there is clear systemic change in terms of our communities getting what we need to survive, not just survive, but prosper. And until police stop killing Black people without consequence, then there's always going to be something to fight for. Our communities are over-policed and in poverty and need support. So do you see progress being made? Well, I'm hopeful. I'm always going to be hopeful for change. I can, I can see the future and I can see a clear pathway to it. It's just depending on if the people who can genuinely make those decisions are radical enough and brave enough to do it, are brave enough to care, which I don't even, I don't really understand half the time why it's an argument, why we have to march, why we have to rally, why I have to justify a reason for caring about Black life and Black communities. It shouldn't have to be justified why why I deserve to live, why my why people in my community deserve to eat and have proper housing and go to school, etc. That was racial justice advocate Jaden Polk on this first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. The law firm Perkins Cooey 
a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. And Blue Shield of California, closing the health care gap since 1939. Learn more about their commitment to quality and fair health care for every Californian at news.blueshieldca.com. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, May 25th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks for listening. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd took his last labored breaths while Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck. What happened that night reverberated around the world. One year later, independent journalist Georgia Fort looks at the progress that's been made since then. On May 25, 2020, George Floyd took his last labored breaths while Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck. What happened that night reverberated around the world. One year later, we reflect on how George Floyd's death galvanized a racial justice movement in Minnesota that was years in the making. And we look at what progress has been made since then. You're listening to George Floyd a year later. I'm Georgia Ford. On the evening of May 25th, 2020, 46-year-old George Floyd went to Cup Foods, a neighborhood convenience store at the corner of 38th and Chicago. He went in to buy some cigarettes. It was a beautiful spring evening, sunny and warm, but not yet hot and humid. Floyd laughed and joked with folks in the store. He talked sports with the clerk, 19-year-old Christopher Martin. After paying for his cigarettes, Floyd bounced out of the store, light on his feet, and got into a car parked out front. Martin noticed the $20 bill Floyd used had a strange bluish tint to it and suspected it was fake. Cup Foods had a policy that if they found counterfeit bills in the cash register, clerks would have to pay for it out of their own pockets. After asking a manager what to do, Martin went out to the parking lot to ask Floyd to come back in the store. But Floyd was sound asleep. That's when the cops were called. 17-year-old Darnella Frazier was walking to the store with her niece and saw the cops with Floyd on the ground. She sent her niece ahead into the store and pulled out her phone to record what was happening. Bro, you got him down, man. Let him breathe, Lisa, man. Let him breathe. I've been trying to hear about So let him breathe, let him Thanks to Frazier, the entire world was able to watch what happened next. Man, I can't breathe my face. Just get up. They saw Floyd lying face down with his hands cuffed behind his back. They saw Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pressing his knee into Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, almost casually, with his hands in his pockets. They watched as Floyd's initial cries of distress, saying he couldn't breathe, he was in pain, and at one point even calling out for his dead mother. All eventually went silent. The brutality of the video unearthed layers of trauma, anger, and despair that had been building for years. In the days that followed, protests erupted in Minneapolis, across the nation, and across the world. George Floyd, George Floyd, George Floyd, George Floyd. 
Ultimately, a jury would find Officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murder, and many pronounced the verdict a significant win for police accountability. But how much has really changed? George Floyd a year later is a production of Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities in partnership with KMLJ Radio, the Minnesota Humanities Center, and with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Online at racialreckoningmn.org. Head on over to our website, kvmr.org, to listen to the full-length version of George Floyd a year later. In local news, Nevada County is reporting 10 new cases today, the first time we've seen double digits since May 10th. 131 cases are active and two are listed as hospitalized. Nevada County is one of only eight other counties in the red or substantial tier. The California Farm Bureau said in a release today that the drought is hitting the northern California farmers and ranchers particularly hard. Along the north coast, farmers face what one called a bleak situation, with low water levels in the Russian River watershed. With supplies from the river likely curtailed, some farmers have tried to diversify by acquiring recycled water from the city of Ukiah. Others will have to fallow land or grow crops without irrigation. Ranchers and other livestock owners must haul water to cattle and sheep after springs and reservoirs dried. And for regional weather, in Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, clear, with a low around 51. Wednesday will be sunny, with a high near 80. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, clear, with a low around 33. Tomorrow will be beautiful, sunny, with a high near 69. And for those in the valley, Sacramento and Woodland and the surrounding area, tonight, clear with a low around 55. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 89. Next, Paul Emery chats with hydrogeologist Steve Baker about the drought, and how it's impacting California's farmers. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, welcome back, Steve. Um, ah, great a, to be here. Had a little break last week, but the, the news goes on. And of course, <laughs> the big news concerning water is lack of it. I'm hearing more about this year's drought. Is Is it worse than... Uh, last year's drought or our last official drought? Well, you know, let me answer a question with a question, okay? Do you remember hearing about houseboats being removed from Lake Orville because the water level is so darn low, it's going to damage those boats? That's what's going on right now. Oh, I, I didn't hear that. No. <laughs> it, I mean, do you remember hearing that projected runoff into the reservoirs was overestimated? And that's because the soils in the watershed dried out way more than it normally does. And that created this deficit. What snowpack developed this winter melted because of abnormally warm temperatures? That's, that's what's happened in this particular winter. And this dried out the soils to such a degree that when the snow melted in the high country and, and then started to flow downhill into the lower parts of the watershed, that that water runoff evaporated, or it ended up getting absorbed by the soils that were so darn dry. 
And what was left, which wasn't much of anything, uh, flowed into the reservoirs. So our reservoirs remained empty. We emptied them out, anticipating flow. That flow never arrived. That's That's been the problem. Lake Oroville is expected to drop below the record low, which is 645 feet. Now, that record occurred in September of 1977. And I don't know if you remember, but 1976, 1977, that two-year drought was a really severe drought. So this is being compared at times to that drought. Okay. Uh, wow. I'll, I'll bet farmers are having to make hard choices at this point. You know, they are. I mean, this is something you could probably be very relatable. Uh, here's an example. I, I've gotten to know Joe Del Bosque. He's a farmer down in the uh, western side of, of the Central Valley in, in Fireball area, Los Banos area. And uh, he has a diversified farm. And this part this part of the valley, the west side, they have junior water rights, which means that if there's a water shortage, as there is this year, they're the ones who lose their water first. Well, how do you think a farmer's going to feel about that? 2021 is providing him with 5% of his water allocation. So for every 100, he only gets 5. Okay, that's pretty small. Let's put this into terms that we can all relate to, all right? Let's say that you're a family of four. And each person in this area generally per person use on a daily basis about 110 gallons. So, for, you know, 440 gallons. All right. So if we were told, hey, you can only use 5% of your uh, allocated water uh, in your home per day, um, that would be 22 gallons. So how devastating would that be for your household of four people to use on a daily basis only 22 gallons. That's that's really a low amount. Well, Joe Del Bosque, he's sacrificing his asparagus fields so his organic melons will have enough water. So basically, he's giving up 100 acres of, of asparagus to allow him to grow 150 acres of melons with that same water. It's either one or the other. That's how they have, have to think. And uh, he's choosing that because he has to look at his economics, too. They have to be around for next year. So Farmers have a lot to lose in these droughts, and I, I think all of us could uh, really start paying attention to our local farmers, cert, most certainly, as well as our farmers across, across the state. Wow. Lots of news, Steve. Thank you so much. You bet. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. Check out the entire interview on our website, kvmr.org, or on the KVMR News Podcast. It seems as though cryptocurrencies are here to stay. Tonight, Mark Cunaberti shares his thoughts about them in this commentary. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. With the explosion both in investor interest and price action, cryptocurrencies is a hot topic. Originally conceived as an alternative currency, Bitcoin was the first digital money to make its debut in 2009. Since then, over 4,000 different cyber coins have hit the market. The allure is that it reportedly cannot be manipulated or eliminated by any one person, entity, or government. Created and stored in cyberspace, the argument appeared to be a valid one. Since their creation, stories of overnight millionaires abound, and I'm hearing more of these rags-to-riches stories every day. 
It's not just about making a few bucks. If what I am told is to be believed, ungodly sums of money has been made for more than just a few of my acquaintances. I have to admit I can't say I fully understand how crypto works. I would guess neither do many of its investors. What I can say is this has all the trappings of a mania. From the buzz, to the quick profits by the inexperienced, to the price charts and right down to this time it's different story, it reeks of a mania. Similar to dot-com real estate and a thousand other get-rich methods and schemes, it has all the classic signs and then some. I have issues with crypto. I own a small amount through a Wall Street vehicle and not on any phone app. On those phone apps, I hear stories of investors losing passwords or hacked apps, resulting in absconded funds. One investor profiled in a Wall Street article was locked out of $100 million and only had two chances left to remember his 132-character password before losing this fortune into the black hole of cyberspace. And no, there's no one you can call. Once it's locked, it's essentially gone forever. Besides the too-good-to-be-true aspects of all the stories and overnight zillionaires, Cybercoin will never, at least in its current form and in my opinion, function as a valid currency. Currencies must possess a variety of characteristics, among which one of the most important is a store of value. This means if you take a currency for something real, you must be sure the currency you received maintains the value it had when you took it. Think Mexican peso. No problem, you say? It will eventually, if not overnight, skyrocket in price? Not if you look back at the last two weeks or so. Nevertheless, a skyrocketing price is not a store of value. Store of value must be in both directions, which means both the buyer and the seller must not lose value over time in the transaction. Simply put, for every winner in Cybercoin, there is a loser, which is why currencies must be stable and not fluctuate in value and what it can buy. The corporation Square, who makes that device that puts on phones and charges credit cards, says they won't buy any more crypto after losing $20 million. Ouch. Like I said, the last two weeks have probably seen a lot more losers. It's a hard concept to digest. Cybercoin is, with most investors thinking they will gladly take a Cybercoin for payment. Maybe that's changed lately. But I would ask, would you pay one out to buy something? A currency must remain at relatively the same value over time to be a valid receipt of products or services, as that is what a currency is, a receipt of a consistent value. Cybercoin is anything but price stable. A few other things bother me about sinking thousands into Cybercoin. Elon Musk, the maverick founder of Tesla, appeared on Saturday Night Live and then two days later tweeted Tesla would no longer accept Bitcoin in the foreseeable future. That hammered Bitcoin down 12%. Adding insult to injury in the last two weeks, it's dropped almost 50%. I don't know about you, but I don't want oodles of my hard-earned money susceptible to obliteration when a single treat or statement can crash it or lose 50% in two weeks. As for being an indestructible cyberspace currency, no one government can manipulate. Governments don't have to be able to get at it to eliminate it. All they have to do is outlaw its use and or remove the apps that trade it. Bitcoin crashed 4% when the country of Turkey outlawed its use as payment. They're not the only ones. Kyrgyzstan, Bolivia, Bangladesh, Iran, Nepal, Thailand, India, Denmark, and Ecuador have all come out in some way or another against Cybercoin. The list is bound to grow larger as sovereign currencies, the checkbook of governments, are threatened by the use of Cybercoin. Just think what would happen to the price of Cybercoin if the US or another major superpower took similar steps. No thanks. Someday Cybercoin may find its rightful place among monetary instruments, but for now, it scares the hell out of me.
That's it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are my opinions only and may not necessarily reflect those of the station its staff management or underwriters. Nothing managed to ensure a guarantee or be construed as individual investment advice. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare-approved agent in the state of California. Contact phone number is 530-559-1214. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Thanks a lot for listening. That's our newscast for tonight, Tuesday, May 25th, 2021. Stay tuned. Embracing the Journey is next, followed by Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman at 7 p.m. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening, and have a great evening.